So with that, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians 3, verse 13, as we continue in Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. Galatians 3, verse 13 Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of the very heart of the gospel. We pray you'd help us not just to understand them, but to believe the Christ who spoke them and that our faith would rest there in Him and that we would be strengthened in our faith to believe His grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage speaks of three things. First, the curse of the law. First, the curse of the law. Second, the redemption of Christ. And third, and more briefly, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So first, the curse of the law. Second, the redemption of Christ. And third, the promise of the Spirit. So first, consider the curse of the law. You can see it there in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So consider what that means, the curse of the law. In context, this is referring to the old covenant curse. That the the old covenant required perfect obedience for life, and a single violation of the old covenant brought the curse. And that's what Galatians 3, verse 10 says. So if you look up in verse 10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So you want to be righteous by the law? You have to do it all. You're not allowed to sin at all. You must be perfectly obedient. The Old Covenant is very clear about this. Now, some people, they say, well, what about the sacrificial system? Surely the sacrifices meant you didn't have to be perfect. The blood of the sacrifices would forgive you, but actually the Old Covenant sacrifices could never forgive moral transgressions. The book of Hebrews is very clear about that. And if you study the Old Testament, you'll see that the penalty for crimes against the Ten Commandments was a civil punishment, often death. There was no forgiveness for them. And this is what Paul is talking about, that cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Deuteronomy 11 verses 8 and 9 speaks of this perfect obedience. So we're looking at the curse of the law. And it says, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land you're going over to possess. So how do you get into the land? You perfectly obey the whole law, that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. And so the immediate context is the old covenant law. But Paul is actually showing that the Old Covenant is a type of something greater because outside of Jesus, everyone is under the curse of the law. Just consider the Garden of Eden. How many times did Adam have to sin to be removed from that relationship without any possibility of forgiveness in the Garden? Once. He sinned one time and that was it. 
The law requires perfect obedience. A single sin brings the curse. And everyone in Adam, so all unbelievers, according to Paul, are under the law and under its curse. And what is the curse of the law? What is that? Well, the curse of the law is death. But not only physical death. Sin causes death within sinners. So the curse of the law is that you're born under condemnation and with a sinful nature, and God curses sinners with deep division in themselves. Even though they're alive, outwardly, inwardly, they're dead. In their hearts, they know what they do is wrong. But they justify themselves in their wrongdoing. So they're in conflict with themselves. Their thoughts are at war with each other. Romans 2.15 says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Conflicting thoughts. And so God curses sinners within themselves with an inward division. That's the curse of the law. There's another aspect of the curse of the law. That is, God curses our relationships with each other. As God gives sinners over to themselves, they're divided against each other. They try to lord it over each other, to rule over and down upon one another, to manipulate each other for selfish gain. And then they justify their actions self-righteously. The true source of problems in marriage, in churches, and in society, and in every human institution is not the structure or power imbalances, but sin in the human heart. You put a sinner in any structure and he will use it for himself and abuse it and hurt others in it. But above all, God curses sinners in relation to himself. So we see that the curse of the law is a curse within the hearts of men. It's a curse between each other, but it's also a curse in relation to God because sinners aren't just people who stumbled into sin. Sin didn't just, it's not just a decay in our hearts. Sin is sedition. It is high-handed rebellion, traitorous rebellion against the one true God. Sinners want to be God. They want His rule. Isn't that what, why Adam and Eve ate the fruit? What did the devil tell them? He said, you'll be like God. And then they took the fruit and they ate it. And instead of knowing God and beholding His beauty... Sinners try to live without God. Here's what we do as sinners in our sin. We seek the blessing and benefit of God outside the presence of God. We want things from Him without Him. That's what sin is. We, the book of Romans puts it this way. We worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. We trust ourselves instead of Him. It's rebellion Listen to what Nahum 1 says about God's wrath towards sinners. So we're still considering what is the curse of the law. Here it is. Nahum 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Jealous means 
We think of that as negative, but jealous means God wants your affection because it's good for you. That's what his jealousy is. He wants your trust and your affection because you need it. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And yet, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are dust of his feet. And then Nahum 1 verse 6, we're considering the curse of the law and the wrath of God towards sinners. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What? Do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end of you. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. So God gives the wicked what they deserve. This is the curse of the law. His wrath, in biblical language, is kindled against sinners because sin is rebellion against the one true God of heaven and earth. And God ultimately gives the wicked sinners what they deserve, which is ultimately separation from his goodness in an eternal hell. The Bible teaches that hell is a place of eternal, that is unending, conscious, so they're not asleep, they don't grow numb, conscious torment, which means unbelievable suffering. Listen to what the Scriptures say in Revelation 4.11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This is the suffering of hell. This is the curse of the law that Paul's talking about in Galatians. In Matthew 25, verse 41, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then Matthew 25, verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Bible speaks of hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's such unbelievable suffering that people are weeping and they're gnashing their teeth. It says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What that the picture here is there was a garbage dump outside Jerusalem, Gehenna, and there were worms. But the fire would consume the worms, and they would eventually die. Here, the worms just feed on you in hell, and they never die, and they keep feeding on you, and the fire is never quenched. Have you ever meditated on hell? This is the curse of the law. The Bible's teaching on the curse of the law. Hell is a place 
of unimaginable suffering, loss, and sorrow. Hell will be physically painful because the Bible teaches that the unjust will be resurrected and they will get bodies that can never die, and yet they can suffer and they will suffer. But there will also be great anguish in the soul in hell. This will be the worst torment that will never end. Imagine madness upon madness, being imprisoned in your own mind, being imprisoned in your own emotions, which torment you day and night. God shows absolutely no mercy to those in hell. They'll cry out and He shows no grace. Nothing those in hell do or say can change their state. And this eternity of suffering is very hard to imagine because after 10 million years in hell, they wouldn't have even begun to suffer eternally. And why are they in hell? You say, how can a good God do this? Well, because God's holy justice demands it. A single sin against an infinitely holy God deserves infinite punishment. And some people can't understand how a good God could punish people this way. But God punishes the wicked because He is good. His goodness means that He hates and opposes what is evil. Would He be good if He approved of evil? Is a person good if they approve of evil? No. Goodness is manifest by hatred, opposition to what is evil. But there's a second reason there in hell. First, because God is good. And that's what Nahum actually says, that God visits His wrath upon the wicked because He is good. But people are also in hell because they do not want to be in heaven. If you were to take a wicked person and put a wicked person in heaven, they would hate it. Because heaven is not indulging your appetites on the world. Heaven is, is God. And the wicked don't want him. And so to put them in heaven would put them in a place and before God who they do not want. And so the wicked are in hell because they don't want God. Here's a man who is listening to a sermon on the horrible weight of his sin. And the preacher explained that sin is a terrible weight of guilt and shame. Sin is like having 10,000 pounds of weights wrapped around your shoulders. And then the preacher explained what the guilt, uh, what these sins are that bring such guilt, lustful thoughts, murderous words, a covetous heart, a rebellious spirit, and pride, and on and on. These are all terrible weights. The preacher said that the weight of sin is like hundreds of thousands of pounds. But a man was listening to the sermon, and he didn't feel the weight of his sin. And so he came up to the preacher after the service, and he said, I don't I don't feel the weight of the guilt of my sin. I have sins like everyone else, but I don't see myself as that bad. The preacher thought for a moment to consider how to answer, and he said, a hundred thousand pounds weighing on the chest of a dead man doesn't feel like anything. You must be born again. That is, you have to, your eyes must be open to see who God is in His goodness, to see who you are in your sin. 
You have to, your eyes have to be open to see that your sins cost the Son of God his very life, that he bled and died on the cross because of the weightiness of the guilt of your sin and mine and its ugliness and its horror. But this is why you must be born again so that you can see. That's the bad news of the curse of the law. But consider the good news of redemption in Christ. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That word redeemed could be translated ransomed. So to understand the meaning of the biblical word ransom, imagine a, a wicked slaver coming through your neighborhood, taking people. And they st- the slaver steals people from your family, even steals you. Puts you in chains, drags you to the slave market, and then puts you on a block to be sold. And the slaver begins to advertise your traits. And he begins to speak of, this is a strong one. Here's one. We'll sell this one to you. And people begin to bid. But one man begins to try to outbid everyone else. And as the bids go up for you, one man keeps bidding higher and higher. He's not going to stop until he purchases you. And then the man who buys you takes your hand, takes you off the block, takes off your chains, and he says, now you're free. That's redemption. It's ransoming us from slavery to be liberated from the guilt of our sin. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus bought you out of bondage. He bought you from hell to himself, and he is life and freedom. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if the Son of Man sets you free, you will be free indeed. And he comes to set you free. But how did Jesus ransom us from the curse of the law? We'll look at verse 13 again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Do you see that one little word, for? It's a very important word. In context, that Greek word means instead of. He ransomed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse instead of us. This is crucial to understand. Do you understand someone must die for your sins? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. God would be unjust if he did not punish your sins, but he's not unjust. You deserve death. And you can die for your own sins without Jesus, or you can trust Jesus to die for your sins in your place. Either you can die or Jesus dies for you, but you have to trust him. This is sometimes called the great exchange That God treated sinners, God treated Jesus like a sinner. That's what was happening on the cross. 
God poured out his wrath upon Christ. Another way to put this, since Jesus is God, is God poured his wrath out on himself. He treated himself like a sinner, even though he wasn't, so that he could treat you like you are righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then if you look at the second half of verse 13, Paul explains the basis of this doctrine. So do you see how what he did first is he just cites a doctrine, but he proves it by citing Scripture. He says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He's using the Bible to prove his doctrines. Notice Paul's complete confidence in the authority of Scripture, that what the Bible says is true, and it is a foundation of all of our theology. And this full passage that he quotes, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, can be found in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. And here's what it says. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain there all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So this is basically saying what happens to someone who's committed a capital crime. If you've committed a crime that deserves a death penalty, then your body gets hung on a tree to show everyone else you're cursed of God. This is also the way they, the Jews thought about Jesus. When he hung on a cross, do you remember the Pharisees wanted to take him down and not let him go through the night because it would defile the land because Jesus was cursed. This is very offensive to Jews. you remember that the, the gospel is an offense to Jews and a stumbling block? Why is it an offense to Jews? Because they could not possibly conceive that the Messiah was damned of God. But that's the heart of the gospel. He was damned of God. So you don't have to be. He took the curse so that you don't have to be under the curse. And how, how can you receive this grace the salvation, not by your works, not by reforming your life, not by becoming a good person, not by changing yourself, not by coming to church, not by being baptized. All those things are great, but they won't save you or, or get Christ for you. You just trust Him. You look to Him and you trust Him that He is true God and true man, the Messiah, the king, the one who reconciles poor sinners to God, and he cancels the curse. This is the heart of the good news. Listen to what Martin Luther wrote about this passage. He said, the whole emphasis is on the word for us. For Christ is innocent so far as his own person is concerned. Is Jesus guilty? No, he's innocent. Therefore, he should not have been hanged from a tree, which is true, isn't it? It was a lie. They falsely accused him and convicted him and put him to death sinfully, wickedly. He was innocent. 
should not have been hanged from a tree. But then Luther goes on. But because according to the law, every thief should have been hanged, therefore, according to the law of Moses, Christ himself should have been hanged. He bore the person of a sinner and a thief. And not of one, but of all sinners and thieves who trust him. He bore your sins in his body on the tree. And so he should have been cursed for your sins. For we are sinners and thieves, and therefore we are worthy of death and eternal damnation. But Christ took our sins upon himself, and for them he died upon the cross. And that's the heart of the good news. The bad news is you deserve the curse. The good news is that Christ took the curse for us if we trust him. Thirdly and briefly, consider the promise of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. So we've seen the curse of the law, the promise of gospel redemption, but now the promise of the Spirit. It says that Christ became a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. What this means is that the Spirit, by faith, seals you. That's what Ephesians 1 says. The Spirit regenerates you before faith, but then when you believe, He seals you. And He promises to you every good gift, every grace that Christ has bought. It's all coming to you. And notice, and here's what I want you to see, it's all through faith. It's not by your works. Paul is cutting the ground from underneath the legalistic Judaizers who are saying, you need to be religious, you need to keep the old covenant law, you need to be circumcised, keep the food laws, keep old covenant Sabbath, do all those things and you'll be righteous before God. And Paul's saying, it's only, even in the days of Abraham, ever and always been by faith alone. Trust him. Trust him. And whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you'll not only be justified, but you'll be sealed by the Spirit. I've shared this with you before in the past, but I want to read you again Charles Spurgeon's testimony because it's all about faith. This comes from Spurgeon's autobiography, and here's what he wrote. Spurgeon said, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm One Sunday morning, while I was going to a certain place of worship, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if those primitive Methodists could tell me that, I did not care how much they made made my headache. The minister, though, did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers should be instructed But this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. And the text was, in Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. 
He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look, even a child. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone about for that length and managed to spin out maybe 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in this life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you shall be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed of that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that one word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. And then and there, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith with which one looks to him alone. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust in Christ and you shall be saved. After writing about how Christ had saved him, Spurgeon added this. When I was anxious about the possibility 
of a just God pardoning me, I understood and saw by faith that he who is the Son of God became man and in his own blessed person bore my sin in his body on the tree. I saw that the chastisement of my peace was laid on him and that with his stripes I am healed. It was because the Son of God, supremely glorious in his matchless person, undertook to vindicate the law by bearing the sentence due to me, that therefore God was able to pass by my sin. My sole hope for heaven lies in the full atonement made upon Calvary's cross for the ungodly. On that I firmly rely. I have not the shadow of a hope anywhere else. Personally, I could never have overcome my own sinfulness. I tried and I failed. My evil propensities were too many for me till in the belief that Christ died for me. I cast my guilty soul on him and then I received a conquering principle by which I overcame my sinful self. The doctrine of the cross can be used to slay sin even as the old warriors used their huge two-handed swords and mowed down their foes at every stroke There's nothing like faith in the sinner's friend. It overcomes all evil. If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I cannot live in sin any longer, but must arouse myself to love and serve Him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with evil which slew my best friend, I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? Are you a sinner? Look unto Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the Savior, not of the righteous, but of sinners. Indeed, a friend of sinners. And so help us look unto him and keep looking. In Jesus' name, amen.